Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in this episode, we are going to explore the life of a man named Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. If you have traveled around Michigan, in Southwest Michigan, for example, you might be familiar with the village of Schoolcraft in Kalamazoo County. There's also a Schoolcraft Township in Kalamazoo County. If you go up to Houghton County, there's also another township there called Schoolcraft Township. And way up in the Upper Peninsula, there's a county named Schoolcraft County. And there are other locations, which I'll talk about later in this episode, that bear the name of Schoolcraft. So who was he, and what did he mean to Michigan? And that's what we're going to explore in this episode. So come along and join me. So Henry Rowe Schoolcraft was an American geographer, a geologist, and he was an ethnologist. And he was noted for his early studies of Native American cultures, as well as for his 1832 expedition to the source of the Mississippi River. But there's a lot more that he was noted for here in Michigan as well. He was born in 1793 in Gilderland, Albany County, New York. And he was the son of Lawrence Schoolcraft and Margaret Ann Barbara Nero Schoolcraft. And he entered the Union College at age 15 and later attended Middlebury College. And he was especially interested in geology and mineralogy. Now, his father was a glassmaker, and Schoolcraft initially studied and worked in the same industry with his father. At age 24, he even wrote the first paper on the topic, and it was called Vitrology, and that was in 1817. But after working several years in New York and also in Vermont and New Hampshire, the young Schoolcraft left the family business at about age 25 to explore the western frontier. So from November 18th to February 1819, Schoolcraft and his companion, a man named Levi Pettibone, made an expedition from Potosi, Missouri to what is now Springfield. And they traveled further down the White River into Arkansas, making a survey of the geography, the geology, and also the mineralogy of the area. Now, Schoolcraft published this study in a paper entitled A View of the Lead Mines of Missouri in 1819. In this book, he correctly identified the potential for lead deposits in the region, and Missouri eventually became the number one lead-producing state. French colonists had earlier developed a lead mine just outside St. Louis in the 18th century, so his published journal had a, a pretty profound impact on people wanting to get into that mining business, and it was a big benefit to the state of Missouri. He also published another paper called A Journal of a Tour into the Interior of Missouri and Arkansas in 1821. And this was the first written account of a European-American exploration of the Ozark Mountains. Now, this expedition and its resulting publications brought Schoolcraft to the attention of John C. Calhoun, the Secretary of War under James Monroe. And he considered him a man of industry, ambition, and insatiable curiosity. And Calhoun recommended Schoolcraft 
to the Michigan territorial governor, who was Lewis Cass, for a position on an expedition led by Lewis Cass to explore the wilderness region of Lake Superior and the lands west to the upper Mississippi River beginning in the spring of 1820, and Schoolcraft decided to go along with that. So Schoolcraft served as a geologist on the Lewis Cass expedition. And beginning in Detroit, they traveled nearly 2,000 miles, which would be about 3,200 kilometers, along the Lake Huron and Lake Superior shores and west to the Mississippi River, down the river to present-day Iowa, and then returning to Detroit after tracing the shores of Lake Michigan. And they came across southwest Michigan and up across the um, middle part of Michigan over on into Detroit on their return journey. And they came by different ways. Some of them returned by lake all the way back, and then Lewis Cass came across land on horseback and um, a mule train, I believe. Now, this expedition intended to establish the source of the Mississippi River. It was also intended to settle the question of the yet undetermined boundary between the United States and British Canada. The expedition traveled as far upstream as the Upper Red Cedar Lake in present-day Minnesota. And since the low water precluded navigating farther upstream at that point during that time of year, the expedition designated the lake as the river's headwaters and renamed it in honor of Lewis Cass. They called it Cass Lake. Now, Schoolcraft noted, however, that the locals informed the expedition that it was possible to navigate by canoe farther upstream earlier in the year when water levels were higher. So Schoolcraft's account of the expedition, which was published as a narrative journal of travels through the northwestern regions to the source of the Mississippi River, 1821. So in this write-up, he explains that the headwaters of that river were much farther north than Cass Lake, um, which is now on the map as Cass Lake. And that was later discovered. And we'll get into that more in, in a minute here, but because he went back there in a later expedition. Part of the task of the Cass expedition was to also establish forts along the Upper Peninsula area and along the northern Michigan shorelines, as well as the Sault Ste. Marie area. And they did accomplish that, and they needed Schoolcraft to also help them with speaking with the Native Americans. And so he was part of that task force. There were several other Native American uh, tribesmen that were as part of this expedition as well. And I go into that in more detail in another episode that I did on the Lewis Cass expedition. And uh, you can look for that on my podcast in season one. And I may revisit that story again in a later podcast. It's a fascinating period of time in Michigan history. So Schoolcraft was an integral part of this entire expedition under Lewis Cass. And he not only helped with establishing some of the languages and, and identifying the different tribes in their journey, but he was also very instrumental in the geology and geography and the mapping of that whole region as they explored. And they were able to identify a lot of the natural resources that we were finding in Michigan. And it covered mostly the upper part of the lower peninsula. Um, they may have gone into parts of the upper peninsula in the journey. Most of it was a traveling around the lakes and going all the way back uh, down to Chicago and up into uh, Minnesota and traveling up in that area. So they explored quite a bit of territory in that expedition. And then, of course, they returned via Illinois up into Michigan, back across over into Detroit, 
and some of them return journey via the uh, Lake Michigan and went around the waterway. So in 1821, he was a member of another expedition, Schoolcraft was, and which this expedition would take him traveling through Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. And then in 1832, as I mentioned, he led a second expedition to the headwaters of the Mississippi River. And he arrived a month earlier than they had in the 1820 expedition. And he was able to take advantage of the higher water to navigate to Lake Itasca, which is up above Cass Lake, which was determined to be, I think, the actual headwaters. So Henry Rowe Schoolcraft made quite a bit of impact with all of these expeditions into the Northwest Territory area and the Midwest, all the way down to Arkansas, and uh, all the work that he did with his geology research and geography research in these regions. And so his name shows up in a lot of places around Michigan, and as well as Missouri, and even in Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin. And I'll cover that here at the end of this episode. But he met his first wife, Jane Johnston, soon after being assigned in 1822 to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, as the first U.S. Indian agent in the region. And two years before, the government had built Fort Brady. Now, this was two years after the Cass expedition. And he wanted to establish an official presence to forestall any renewed British threat following the War of 1812. So the government tried to ensure against British agitation of the Ojibwe tribe. And so Jane was the oldest daughter of John Johnston, a prominent Scottish fur trader, and his wife... Susan Johnston, who was a Native American Ojibwe, and she has a long name here, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but she was known by her Native American name. It meant woman of the sound, the stars make rushing through the sky, and that was what her Native American name translated into, and her knowledge of the Ojibwe language and culture, she shared this with Schoolcraft, and they formed in part the source materials for an epic poem written by Longfellow called The Song of Hiawatha. So that's another connection to Schoolcraft here in Michigan. Now, Jane and Henry had four children together. William Henry, who died at a very young age of three years old from the croup, they had a stillborn daughter in November 1825. And then Jane Susan Ann was born in October 1827. And uh, she lived a full life in died in Richmond, Virginia. And then John Johnston, who was born in 1829. And he served in the Civil War, but was wounded at the Battle of Gettysburg, and he became disabled. He died at the age of 34 in Elmira, New York. The Schoolcraft sent Janie, which is how they called Jane, and John to a boarding school in Detroit for part of their education. And Janie at 11 could handle the transition, but John at 9 had a more difficult time and missed his parents. Ultimately, they both overcame these challenges and uh, went on to live successful, prominent lives themselves. So Schoolcraft began his ethnological research in 1822 during his appointment as a U.S. Indian agent at Sault Ste. Marie. And he had responsibility for tribes in what is now known as the Northern Michigan region, all the way over to Wisconsin and Minnesota. And his wife, Jane, helped him a lot with this. Um, and Schoolcraft was able to learn the Ojibwe language, as well as the lore of the tribe and its culture. Now, Schoolcraft created the Muzen Igun, or Literary Voyager. It was a family magazine which he and Jane produced, 
in the winter of 1826 to 1827, and they circulated it among friends. The word muzen egun was a, an Ojibwe word for book, and it contained mostly his own writings, although he did include a few pieces from his wife and a few other locals. Although they produced only single issues, each one was distributed widely to residents in the Sault Ste. Marie area and then to Schoolcraft's friends down in Detroit as well as in New York and some other eastern cities. And Jane Johnston, Schoolcraft, used the pen names Rosa and Leelanau as a personae for what she wrote on the different aspects of Indian culture. And that name Leelanau would eventually become used as one of the county names up in the northern part of the lower peninsula of Michigan. Now, Schoolcraft did get elected to the legislature of the Michigan Territory, which he served between 1828 to 1832. And in 1832, he traveled again to the upper reaches of the Mississippi to settle continuing troubles between the Ojibwe and Dakota, or Sioux Nations. He worked at this to talk as to as many Native American leaders as possible to maintain the peace. He was also provided with a surgeon and given instructions to begin vaccinating Native Americans against smallpox. And he determined that smallpox had been among the Ojibwe before when the Ojibwe had had contact with uh, Europeans from the East Coast as early as 1870. In later years, in 1834, he wrote a book called Narrative of an Expedition Through the Upper Mississippi River to Itasca Lake. After his territory for Indian affairs was greatly increased in 1833, Schoolcraft and his wife Jane moved to Mackinac Island, and the new headquarters of his administration was put there. In 1836, he was instrumental in settling disputes between the Ojibwe, and then he worked with them to accomplish the Treaty of Washington in 1836, by which they ceded to the United States a vast territory of more than 13 million acres. In 1838, pursuant to the terms of this treaty, Schoolcraft oversaw the construction of the Indian Dormitory on Mackinac Island, and this building is listed on the National Register of Historic Places today, and it provided temporary housing for the Ojibwe who came to Mackinac Island to receive annuities during their transition to what was envisioned by the U.S. government as a more settled way of life. And then in 1839, Schoolcraft was appointed Superintendent of Indian Affairs in the Northern Department, and he began a series of Native American studies, later published as the Algic Researches, two volumes in 1839. And this included the collection of Native American stories and legends, many of which his wife Jane Johnson Schoolcraft told him or translated for him from her culture. While in Michigan, Schoolcraft became a member of the Board of Regents of the University of Michigan in its early years. And in this position, he helped to establish the state's university financial organization. So he had his hand in a lot of activities in Michigan, mostly in northern Michigan, and he also contributed to the first United States Journal on Public Education, which was the Journal of Education, and he also published The Souvenir of the Lakes, the first literary magazine in Michigan. Now, his wife Jane suffered from frequent illnesses, and she died in 1842 while visiting a sister in Canada and was buried in St. John's Angelican Church in Alcaster, Ontario. On January 12, 1847, after moving to Washington, D.C., 
Schoolcraft married again at age 53 to Mary Howard. And this was a very strange marriage for him to get involved with. She was a Southerner and a slaveholder. She was a member of the elite planter family of the Beaumont District in South Carolina. And she had a very strong support of slavery and opposition to mixed race unions, creating a lot of strains in her relationship with the Schoolcraft children. Um, and so they became alienated both from her and their father after this marriage. And after 1848, Schoolcraft had himself had suffered from a rheumatic condition and his hands became paralyzed. So during this time, Mary devoted much of her attention to caring for him and helping him complete his massive study of Native Americans, which had been commissioned by the Congress in 1846. In 1860, Mary published a very pro-slavery book in opposition to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which had been a bestseller. And I don't think Mary's book became very popular as she intended it to be. So in 1846, when Congress had commissioned Henry Rowe Schoolcraft to write his book about Native Americans, at one point he traveled to England to request the services of George Catlin to illustrate his proposed work, as the latter had widely been regarded as the premier illustrator of Indian life. Schoolcraft was deeply disappointed when Catlin refused. Schoolcraft later engaged the artist Seth Eastman, a career army officer, as illustrator. As an army brigadier general, Eastman had been renowned for his paintings of Native American peoples. He had two extended assignments at Fort Snelling in present-day Minnesota, and the second as a commander of the fort, and had closely studied, drawn, and painted the people of the Indian cultures of the Great Plains. So his works were published in six volumes between 1851 to 1857 by a publisher out of Philadelphia. And critics at the time praised its scholarship and valued content by Schoolcraft and the meticulous and knowledgeable illustrations by Eastman. But the books were also criticized for lack of an index and poor organization and made the information almost inaccessible. And about a hundred years later, in 1954, the Bureau of American Ethnology of the Smithsonian Institution prepared and published an index for the volumes. But Schoolcraft died in Washington, D.C. on December 10th. 1864. After his death, Schoolcraft's second wife, Mary, donated over 200 books from his library, which had been published in 35 different Native American languages, to the Boston Athenaeum. And Schoolcraft and Mary were each buried in the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. And his papers are archived in the Library of Congress. So because of his travels around Michigan and his travels around Minnesota and other parts of the Midwest, there's a lot of references to Schoolcraft all over. And he's written a lot of papers. He had a quite an extensive literary career on everything from Native Americans to geology and geography of the region. And there's quite a list of places that bear his name. Schoolcraft County in Michigan is up in the Upper Peninsula. Schoolcraft Township in Houghton County, uh, Michigan. There's a Schoolcraft Township in Kalamazoo County. And there's a Schoolcraft Township in Hubbard County, Minnesota. And the village of Schoolcraft, as I mentioned earlier, is in Kalamazoo County. And it is uh, right here in southwest Michigan. 
there's also a Schoolcraft River and a Schoolcraft Lake in Minnesota. And there's a Schoolcraft Island on Lake Itasca in Minnesota. On U.S. Route 65 in the vicinity of Springfield, Missouri, it's known as the Schoolcraft Freeway. And there are Schoolcraft Roads located in Marquette and Wayne counties in Michigan and also in Dakota County, Minnesota. There's also a Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan, which is named in his honor. And Henry R. Schoolcraft Elementary School in Waterford, Michigan is named in his honor. And there's a Schoolcraft State Park in Minnesota that was established to commemorate his expeditions in 1820 and 1832. And if you remember my episode on the Liberty ships and the Victory ships, where there was an SS Battle Creek in the Victory class, in the Liberty ship class, there was an SS Henry R. Schoolcraft, which was launched in 1943. I don't think that one's still on the waters today, but there was a a lot of impact from Mr. Schoolcraft in these different areas, and he still has his name on a lot of cities and places as a legacy and honor to his work within the state of Michigan and Minnesota and other parts of the country. In addition to having places named after him, he had a hand in naming several counties and locations in Michigan within the former Michigan Territory. He named Leelanau County, Michigan after his wife's pen name, Leelanau. And those counties that were established in 1840, he made what was called elisions. This is the process of joining or merging different words from different abstract languages. So he merged Native American words with syllables from Latin and Arabic. And so some of the places that he named was Alcona, Algoma, Allegan, Alpina, Aranac, Iosco, Kaukaska, Leelanau, Lenawa, Ascoda, and Tuscola. And I may not have pronounced all those correctly, and you can all shame me in the comments. And even Lake Itasca, at the source of the Mississippi River, was named after him. And it is an example of merging a Native American word and a Latin word to come up with that name. And what's interesting is that in 1843, the unique names of six counties within the state of Michigan that were named after Native Michigan chiefs were erased, but the 1840 counties that Schoolcraft had made elisions of were not changed, and those were kept in place and are still in existence today in the state of Michigan. But gone are six county names that were named after native Michigan chiefs. And that's kind of an interesting story unto itself. So he has a fascinating history in the state of Michigan. And that goes back to the very early pioneer days of the Michigan Territory before statehood as well as after statehood. And although his marriage to his second wife was somewhat controversial, and you can understand why the kids had nothing to do with them after that marriage, um, it is a very interesting life and a very interesting individual. And you can see that he was very passionate about trying to bring the Native American stories to the American people and preserving some of that early history. 
um, and so was his first wife, Jane, as well as his passion for geology and geography, which were instrumental in Michigan moving out of a territory status, the lower counties getting organized and the state moving from a territory to a state. So his contributions to Michigan were quite significant, especially during the early pioneer period. He was a key figure in Michigan's history, and there's certainly a lot more to read about him, and you might be fascinated to find some of his books online, and I'm sure there's a lot of publications still out there in existence. I have read a few of his papers from some of these uh, early journeys and fragments of some of the other writings, and so he is uh, someone that I may revisit and into more details of some of his particular expeditions later on. It gives you a, a quick snapshot of his life and the impact that he had here in Michigan, and you can see why his name shows up in so many places in Michigan. There's several places right here in southwest Michigan. But that's going to conclude today's episode, looking at the life of Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. If you like today's episode, please take some time to uh, leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on. That is always helpful. And uh, certainly hit the five-star review button. That way people can find it a lot more easier and I can get more people listening to this podcast on Southwest Michigan History. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I am always happy to hear from my listeners. In fact, I had three people reach out to me today alone when I was uh, working on preparing for this podcast. So it's kind of interesting. The audience is getting much larger, and it's always wonderful to, to see that, that there are so many people that have an interest in learning about some of the history. And I don't claim to know everything about history. I am just a passionate explorer into the subject myself, so I do not necessarily call myself a historian, although people may refer to me as that. I try to just think of myself as a passionate history podcaster, and I always enjoy venturing into new subject matters. And I work hard on trying to keep the stories uh, to be mixed up with a lot of diverse content on here so that you can uh, always find something new and interesting to listen to. And that's kind of how I tackle this. And this week, I have jumped into some of the earlier pioneer exploration, talking about some of the individuals. And this is the second one in this week's episode about some of that early expedition period in the early days before Michigan was a state. But I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. 